The U.S. government evacuates the U.S. embassy in Kiev and proclaims that war may be soon with Russia. Julian Assange wins his right to appeal to the British High Court in an effort to stop the extradition ruling. The Senate says no to the protection of voting rights. And the U.S. war crimes against the people in Syria are exposed. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's January 25th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. We had a great seminar with Brian just last night, and you can get access to that audio recording if you subscribe at patreon.com. I'm Nicole Roussel here with Esther Ibarum and our host, Brian Becker. Walter Smolarik is out today and will be back next week. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, the U.S. says it can't protect employees in the U.S. embassy in Kiev, which really indicates that a military conflict might be imminent. What do you think? Well, yeah, they announced that they can't protect them, and that's why embassy personnel and their families are are evacuated or being evacuated even as we talk. Again, the implication is that war is close at hand, war may be imminent. We've been covering this story, the story of the growing crisis in Ukraine, the crisis at the Ukrainian-Russian border, and the possibility of a larger conflict between the United States and NATO and Russia in the last couple of shows. And I want to let everyone know that on Wednesday and Thursday of this week, we're going to record a show. It'll be on Breakthrough News Wednesday night. It'll be our Real Story podcast on Thursday morning. We're going to do a deep dive on Ukraine, on the politics of the last 30 years since the dissolution of the Soviet Union when Ukraine became an independent country. We'll talk about the role of NATO, what the U.S. strategic designs are. We'll talk about the history of Ukraine and why this is an issue of paramount importance for the Putin government in Moscow. And frankly, it would be for any government in Russia. We're going to do all of that on Wednesday. So today, uh, we'll only just sort of touch on the big breaking news, which is, as you mentioned, Nicole, that the embassy is being evacuated, which would be an indication that the U.S. is preparing for military conflict. We have some audio from Joe Biden's comments at a Washington press conference last Wednesday. And then because Biden sort of, in a way, sounded like he might not be for an all-out war, it elicited an uproar. That was the headline of the Washington Post. 
Biden's comments elicit uproar, meaning because he wasn't like throwing in completely for war. So Biden had to go back on camera to reassure all of the hawks from both parties and the corporate capitalist media establishment that he indeed was serious about the prospects for major power conflict with Russia. Let's play some of these audio clips, Nicole. I mean, I think the first one begins from the press conference last Wednesday. Yep. Brian, this first clip is a clip of Biden speaking before a press conference last Wednesday, January 19th. The idea that NATO is not going to be united, I don't buy. I've spoken to every major NATO leader. We've had the NATO-Russian summit. We've had other, the OSCE has met, et cetera. And so I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable. If it invades, and it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, et cetera. But if they actually do what they're capable of doing with the force of mass on the border, it is going to be a disaster for Russia if they further invade Ukraine and that our allies and partners are ready to impose severe cost and significant harm on Russia and the Russian economy. And, you know, we're going to fortify our NATO allies. I told him on the eastern flank, if in fact he does invade, we're going to I've already shipped over six hundred million dollars worth of sophisticated equipment, defensive equipment to the Ukrainians. So that is what elicited the uproar was that Biden said if there was a minor incursion, there might not be all out you know, war between the United States and Russia. That you know, did not go down well in Washington, D.C. or with the media elites. But, Nicole, we have the second part of the audio, which shows that Biden is actually threatening Russia. No, Brian, you're right. And here is how he closes that statement, even more warlike. Militarily, they have overwhelming superiority in, on, on, as, as it relates to Ukraine. But they'll pay a stiff price immediately near-term, medium-term, and long-term if they do it. All right. So then that created a wave of anger against Biden. And then I believe he came back in order to clarify his remarks to show that he was even more hawkish than one might have thought from that press conference. Yeah, this was the next day. So last Thursday, the 20th. um, And it's just a short clip of what he said during that press conference. Any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border that is an invasion. But it will be met with severe and coordinated economic response that I've discussed in detail with our allies, as well as laid out very clearly for President Putin. But there is no doubt, let there be no doubt at all, that if Putin makes this choice, Russia will pay a heavy price. This is the unfortunate circumstance that we find ourselves in, where Biden, who's actually clearly threatening Russia at a time when the United States is amassing weapons, advanced weapons, as he said, we're sending advanced weapons to Ukraine, which is on Russia's border. It would be the same as if Russia was sending advanced weapons to the U.S.-Canadian border or to the U.S.-Mexican border. Very threatening, and it would be perceived to be very threatening, and the United States would never stand for it. So Putin is putting his foot down. He's bringing together large numbers of troops inside of Russia, though, not somewhere else, inside of Russia. 
And as we've said, he spoke at the press conference at the end of the year, the press conference he holds annually. And he said, look, this is a red line. We're not going to allow Ukraine to become part of NATO. And we're not going to let Ukraine become a staging ground for advanced weapons and advanced missiles whose flight time might be a minute or two minutes or three minutes with their targets being Russian cities. We're not going to let that happen you know, on our border. And now the Americans are saying Russia is planning to invade. Now, by the way, the Putin government, the Russian government has said over and over again, no, we're not. This is nonsense. They say that this whole thing has been stage managed by the United States, by NATO, in order to carry out provocations that might actually lead to conflict, but that they have no intention of, quote, invading Ukraine. That's the official Russian position. Now, I think it's important for our audience to know how important this is to U.S. and NATO to press every button on Russia, to put maximum pressure, the full court press on Russia at this moment and trying to put Putin in a corner. Because if the Russian government, whether it's Putin or any other government, allows Ukraine, which was the second biggest republic in the Soviet Union after Russia, to be a staging ground for NATO's advanced weapons and missiles, they will never come out of Ukraine. That means Russia will always face this existential threat right at its border. So it's kind of like there's no way to back up. Putin doesn't have a way to back up. There can't be a real retreat on the part of the Russians. They put in writing to the United States and NATO, and that was the basis of these negotiations, what they want. They want a firm guarantee that Ukraine will not be part of NATO and a firm guarantee that Ukraine will not be the staging ground for NATO or Western or U.S. advanced weapons and missiles. And they say, if unless that happens, you know, this is going to be a crisis moment. Now, the German vice admiral, who is one of the leading figures in the German military, one of the biggest military leaders in all of Germany, was just fired. Or maybe he resigned under pressure. And what was his crime? Why was he forced out? This just happened. Here it is. This is his statement when he was in visiting India. He said, quote, is Russia really interested in having a tiny strip of Ukraine soil? No. Or is it to integrate Ukraine into their country? No. This is nonsense. Putin is probably putting pressure because he knows he can do it and he knows that it splits the European Union. What he, Putin, really wants is respect. And my God, giving someone respect is a low cost, even no cost. It's easy to give him the respect he really demands and that he probably also deserves. And then the admiral said and reminded Europe and NATO and the U.S., Russia is an old and important country. For those comments, this leading military figure in Germany has just been forced to resign. Now, that was undoubtedly not only the German government, but it was the NATO high command and undoubtedly the Pentagon that demanded that he be fired because no one can get out of line right now as the U.S. ramps up full-scale war threats against Russia, the second biggest nuclear power in the world. 
Again, the United States is addicted to war, addicted to militarism. And as we can see in the last 20 years, the United States invaded Afghanistan, Iraq, bombed Libya. I mean, it carries out these terrible war crimes in Syria. I mean, it's the United States military that's endlessly at war. And I'll just finish with this. Great Britain, maybe let's call it global Britain, trying to reassert their standing in the world after their exit from the European Union. They've announced that they have discovered plans by the Russian government to have regime change in Kiev. Now, that's kind of funny, given the fact that in 2014, it was the British government with the United States government, with the European Union leadership that actually carried out regime change, an armed insurrection that dispersed parliament and forced the Yanukovych government, democratically elected, yes, corrupt, but democratically elected government of Yanukovych to flee for its life. So here's the British now making huge headlines, Washington Post, New York Times, The Guardian. We have a secret plan that we've discovered that the Kremlin is planning to carry out a coup or unseat the current government in Kiev. Again, all of this is Alice in Wonderland reality tipped upside down. It's also proof that they're not only addicted to war, but also addicted to controlling the narrative, because that's what this is really all about. The fact that this high military official in Germany would be fired for simply speaking his mind, it just it shows that the United States isn't as wedded to free speech and diplomacy as it might say. So the fact that they are already putting weapons there, okay? There's been a lot of talk about a so-called Russian false flag or whatever, but you know, all of this theater could also be designed so that NATO and the U.S. can put weapons there as they are doing already. When they talk about a false flag, they forget about the fact that you have literal neo-Nazis, Nazis attacking the Russian-speaking population in the East. So they're the ones that are likely to create a false flag. And then finally, you know, they have fingered Sputnik and RT Russian media operating here in the U.S. for spreading misinformation as if because any narrative, anybody's saying any set of facts different from this Alice in Wonderland scenario that you just described has to be shut down. You know, they have to be eliminated because they only want their false version of history for the American people to hear. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the attack on Sputnik and RT. It's a big State Department report that just came out. Again, wasting the taxpayers' money, like as if Sputnik and RT are like influencing American public opinion so profoundly. You know, everybody's listening to Sputnik radio programs and everybody's watching RT even though you can't actually get it on your TV station. I mean, it's so ridiculous. And again, everything is turned upside down. Talking about turning everything upside down, this Alice in Wonderland version or narrative of world events. Nicole, the U.S. entered Syria because it said it was fighting to support those who were fighting for freedom and democracy in Syria. Now, the Syrian government didn't invite them, so it's an illegal intervention into Syrian territory. The U.S. said it was trying to defeat ISIS, and that's why they had to intervene. But the Syrian government said, no, we can defeat ISIS. And in fact, ISIS has been defeated between the Syrian government, their allies from Hezbollah, from Iranian-backed forces, from the Russians. I mean, ISIS is defeated. 
So the U.S. isn't really there with a good reason. It's not there with a legal reason. Thus, it's illegal. But the new revelations, and you've been reporting on this for weeks now, revelations about what the U.S. actually has done to the Syrian people, it's so mind-blowing, and it's certainly not getting enough press attention. It's completely mind-blowing. And this newest installment continues to be just you know, heinous and horrendous. Syria's largest dam called the Tabka Dam is an 18 story structure that held back and holds back a 25 mile long body of water. And it was bombed in 2017. The U.S. military had it listed on its do not bomb list because bombing it could cause so much damage because it holds back so much water and possibly kill tens of thousands of people in Syria. But It was, in fact, the United States that bombed it. Specifically, it was the U.S. military group known as Task Force 9, which, according to The New York Times, quote, operated in such secrecy that at times it did not inform even its own military partners of its actions, unquote. This is one of the same secret military groups we've talked about on earlier episodes of the show. Another heinous and disgusting attack that they perpetrated was in Baguz on March 18th, 2019, when, again, the same group, Task Force 9, used a drone to drop a 500-pound bomb on a crowd of civilians, women, and children. And then a jet tracked any survivors that had you know, survived that 500-pound bomb, and the jet dropped two 2,000-pound bombs, killing most of the survivors, and in total killing 70 people. So we've talked about that story before, and this is the same group, Task Force 9, that was apparently, we're now finding out, responsible for bombing Syria's largest dam. Task Force 9 didn't try to get approval for the attack, and they used a workaround designated for emergencies that we now know and have talked about on the show that they and other units use these widely and discriminately. I believe the exact word in the New York Times reporting was routinely. In this attack on the dam, and again, this is an 18-story dam, the biggest in the country, and it holds a 25-mile-long body of water. So imagine, I mean, this is a huge structure that's holding back a lot, a lot, a lot of water that could cause a lot of damage. They used, in attacking it, some of the largest conventional bombs available, including a bunker buster bomb that is designed to rip through thick concrete. Scott Murray, a retired Air Force colonel, said about the munitions that they used that they could have, quote, absolutely caused the dam to fail, unquote. A spokesperson at the time said that the bombs, quote, only hit the towers attached to the dam, not the dam itself. But and, you know, this really gets into how much they've been hiding, how much the U.S. military has been hiding, because dam workers later found one bunker buster bomb. Remember, those are the ones that are literally designed to rip through thick concrete structures. They found a bunker buster bomb in the lower level of the dam that hadn't gone off. It was a dud, luckily enough. And the spokesperson also said, quote, analysis had confirmed that strikes on the towers attached to the dam were not considered likely to cause structural damage to the Takba Dam itself, unquote. And he also claimed that there had been pre-approval from higher-ups. This was all spin to improve PR because not only, you know, he said, well, they only hit the towers attached to the dam, not the dam. Well, no, there was a bunker buster bomb in the dam itself that hadn't gone off. But there were other bunker buster bombs that did, in fact, hit the dam and did go off. And then the spokesperson said, you know, well, we had assessed it and said there wasn't, you know, there wasn't likely to have structural damage. But that's not true because later on, and I'll read a little bit more into this, 
officials, you know, who are actually acknowledging now, no, we knew it was on the do not bond list because we knew it was going to cause structural damage and that was going to be catastrophic. And then again, there had not been pre-approval because this task force, like many units, like, you know, several different units in the U.S. military and like we've been reporting on, were routinely using an emergency workaround to avoid getting any pre-approval whatsoever and just making their own decisions at low levels. So I want to read directly from this article in the New York Times now, quote, two former officials who were directly involved in the air war at the time and Syrian witnesses interviewed by the New York Times said the situation was far more dire than the U.S. military publicly claimed. Critical equipment lay in ruins and the dam stopped functioning entirely. The reservoir quickly rose 50 feet and nearly spilled over the dam, which engineers said would have been catastrophic. The situation grew so desperate that authorities at dams upstream in Turkey cut water flow into Syria to buy time. And sworn enemies in the years-long conflict, the Islamic State, the Syrian government, Syrian Defense Forces, and the U.S., called a rare emergency ceasefire so civilian engineers could race to avert a disaster. Engineers who worked at the dam who did not want to be identified because they feared reprisal said it was only through quick work, much of it made at gunpoint, as opposing forces looked on, that the dam and the people living downstream of it were saved. The destruction would have been unimaginable, a former director at the dam said, quote, the number of casualties would have exceeded the number of Syrians who have died throughout the war, unquote. So, I mean... To summarize this, I don't even know where to start, really. It's, you know, not only is the U.S. military has clearly no actual control over what's going on and, you know, not any awareness of what's going on in its units and how many civilians, how many people are not only killed but put at risk en masse. But also, once they did find out what was happening and once they did find out that this dam that was on the do not bomb list, do not bomb this, this is terrible, this will cause huge damage and kill civilians— once they found out that it had been attacked, they hid all of this from all of us and from the world and wouldn't acknowledge it and spun all kinds of lies. Just to go into a little bit more detail of what happened with the engineers who worked there, one engineer who was working at the dam was inside the structure when the structure was hit. He ducked out on the roof to see what was going on and saw an American B-52 bomber panicked because he thought he might be identified you know, wrongly as a Islamic State personnel. And when the B-52 bomber was gone, he got on a motorcycle, drove to the dam manager's house and reported what was going on to try to figure out what are we going to do? How are we going to make sure that this water doesn't go over the top of this huge structure and kill you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people? And then it was essentially Russia had to get on the phone. Russia had been invited into Syria to help Syria deal with the Islamic State issue. Russia got on the phone with the United States and said, this is what happened. This is what you did. And the United States since sent engineers from allies to work alongside the Islamic State workers and the Syrian government workers, all working together in this because this was so horrendous and could cause so much damage. I mean, just completely unbelievable that this happened. Yeah. We keep flagging these stories. You think like you've heard the worst and then the next week here on the Socialist Program and from other independent alternative media sources, you get more. And of course, as Walter pointed out a couple of weeks ago, the New York Times and some of the media are making the point that this or that part of the U.S. war in Syria was a mistake or it was too much or it was bad, but they don't question the legality, the rightness or wrongness of the U.S. to be in Syria. 
The U.S. has no right to be killing Syrians. It has no right to bomb a Syrian dam. I mean, again, as we move on, I want to go on to other stories because we have a lot to cover here. But can you imagine, everybody just think about it for a second, some of the biggest dams in the United States. Think about the Tennessee Valley Authority. Think about any of the big dams, biggest dams where another country, say Syria, for instance, decides that it doesn't like nearby right-wing organizations or anti-Arab organizations or religious fanatics who live close by and then just come and drop 500-pound bombs on the dam that could lead to the loss of tens of thousands of lives. But in the United States and in the United States media, you know, these are like, hey, should we have done that? Hey, Task Force 9 went a little bit too far this time, where if you look at the actual facts, and that's all you absolutely need to look at, you can't but come to the conclusion that the U.S. government is tolerating war crimes not by an errant task force, not by an overly zealous unit of special operations soldiers. This is the U.S. government policy. And the story makes it a point to say that how the U.S. was there fighting against ISIS, but that was never really the point of the U.S. being there. The story also makes it a point to say that U.S. forces lied about it being a defensive strike and necessary. But as you said, they don't really tell the real story of the war and they'll never mention how it was Syria, it was Iran, General Soleimani, who we executed and assassinated, who was really fighting ISIS and not blowing up Syrian infrastructure to do it. And quickly before we move on, We've made this point a few times on the show before, but I think it's incredibly important to make that the only reason we're talking about this now is because it's after the fact. These reports are coming out now. The U.S. military was lying through their teeth at the time that this was happening. And anybody who said the U.S. needs to get out of Syria was being criticized as being an Assad apologist. But, you know, that's incredibly relevant because these kinds of attacks are still going on to this day in other places. At this moment, this last week on Friday, what was very, very likely the Saudi Arabian-led coalition hit a prison that was in Yemen run by the Houthis and killed at least 70 people. Now, earlier in the day, they had also struck and completely taken offline all of the internet in Yemen, Yemen being the Arab world's poorest country. They took offline the entire internet. I mean, imagine again, if some country decided to bomb the United States and take out our internet infrastructure. It's not only horrendous, but the fact that it's happening and there's very little news about it is incredibly distressing. And the reason that I bring this up is because the U.S., along with the UK and France, have long helped Saudi Arabia with logistical and intelligence support, you know, as long as Saudi Arabia has been leading these airstrikes against Yemen since 2015. The U.S. has been known to bring planes over and refuel Saudi Arabian bombers midair to make sure that they can continue bombing this very poor country with mass starvation. So, you know, it's incredibly important to look back at these reports in Syria and know what really happened and apply that information and that you know, that understanding that these lies are told every day to, you know, when we're looking at things that are happening in this moment. Yeah. Those Saudi bombing raids are coordinated by Pentagon soldiers, special operations units that help do the bombing coordinates for the Saudi bombers. Also, in the five years before the U.S. war to Yemen, U.S. arms transfers to Saudi Arabia 
amounted to $3 billion. Between 2015 and 2020, the United States sold $64 billion worth of weapons to Riyadh. $64 billion. By the way, $64 billion just in weapon sales to Riyadh, that's the equivalent of Russia's entire annual military budget. You got that? It's about $60 billion. The U.S., which says that Russia is a great threat, spent $768 billion just in the DOD budget. That doesn't include Department of Energy, the Department of Homeland Security. Anyway, the United States is guilty of carrying out these airstrikes in Yemen. They have the blood of the Yemeni people all over their hands. Anyway, let's go on to another story. I really want to talk about this. It's so important. Esther, the Washington Post ran an important story about this man in his mid-50s. He bought a home in Virginia, and it turned out that the home was a long time ago, not that long ago, but a long time ago by some standards, the actual center of a plantation on which this man's grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents were actually enslaved people. And the person who bought it, the man who bought it and the family who bought it, who had lived just down the street from this historical plantation on which their relatives were enslaved, they had no idea until they bought the place that it had been a plantation, that it was a slave quarters, and it was their family that was enslaved there. And I'm thinking about this because the people in the United States have been forcibly prevented from learning history about the United States, about their own families. It's an effort to whitewash American history. And of course, this is a black family, an African-American family, but this is true for all the people in the United States who are have been forcibly prevented from learning the truth about U.S. history, and now the whole so-called critical race theory scandal is an effort to stop them from learning anything now. Anyway, let's just talk about this remarkable story. Right. This story and several stories that were linked to it, they're really important for us to talk about today. So on Saturday, the Washington Post published a story about a man named Frederick Miller, who grew up in rural Virginia in a town named Gretna, and how even as a child, he had always passed this large, majestic home in the community. As the author Joe Heim writes, the house had Gothic revival gables, six chimneys, diamond-paned windows, and a sweeping lawn. So Miller is 56 years old now, and he lives in California. But two years ago, his sister called him and said, let him know that this house he had seen as a child and that was always in the community, that it was up for sale. So he jumped on the opportunity and bought this house. And from that decision, he learned that this current 10-acre property was once a 2,000-acre plantation. And he learned that his ancestors had been not only enslaved there, but that like many African-Americans, his family name, Miller, was the same name of the plantation owners before and during the Civil War. Charles Edwin Miller and Nathaniel Crenshaw Miller. So I've been fortunate in the last couple of years to interview a woman here in D.C., Natan Elaine Kemp. 
And she's a genealogist who unearthed her family's roots in the most violent district of the slaveocracy and Confederacy, and that's Edgefield, South Carolina. So for me, the story that you brought to us, Brian, is about the Millers is one of the more recent examples of how, you know, more advances in history, historical, genealogical research, and even DNA analysis is allowing African-Americans to dig out the truth of their family history, which can be very difficult. It can be very blurry due to the poor or non-existent records during the Jim Crow era and the period of enslavement in this country and the horror of the actual transatlantic slave trade. Those records are very difficult to sift through. So these facts, as you mentioned, they're very important right now because the right is passing all these laws supposedly against something called critical race theory, but is actually forbidding the teaching of the truth about slavery. And they want to erase the true lived history of a people and of African-Americans in particular. So as an example, all eight members of the Mississippi State Senate walked out of a vote on Friday when Republicans there passed a bill that critics say will ban the teaching of so-called critical race theory in public schools from kindergarten through college. And one tweet in response noted, Mississippi, which honors Robert E. Lee on MLK's birthday, has state holidays on Confederate Memorial Day, and Jefferson Davis's birthday bans the teaching of critical race theory. Like, wow. So though Miller had received little to no education in school about slavery and people generally did not talk about it in the community, and I think this is really important because I think that's the fact for most schools in this country, especially in the South, even though he had received very little education, the historical records they were able to dig up don't lie. In some cases, when Black people can find, you know, forthcoming like white descendants of the slave owner, descendants who might be actual relatives, the DNA doesn't lie either. So that's one of the things that I talked to Natan Elaine Kemp about. I want to mention also another Washington Post article that was linked to this one from 2019 by Hannah Natanson, and it was titled, They Were Once America's Cruelest, Richest Slave Traders. Why Does No One Know Their Names? Isaac Franklin and John Armfield Committed Atrocities They Appear to Relish. And it starts out this way. The article starts out this way. Slave trading was a game. The men Isaac Franklin and John Armfield were daring pirates or one-eyed men, a euphemism for their penises. The men they bought and sold were fancy maids, a term signifying youth, beauty, and a potential for sexual exploitation by buyers or the traders themselves. Rapes happened often. Quote, to my certain knowledge, she has been used and that smartly by a one-eyed man about my size and age, excuse my foolishness, Isaac Franklin's nephew James, an employee and his uncle's protege, wrote in typical business correspondence referring to Carolyn Brown, an enslaved woman who suffered repeated rape and abuse at James's hands for five months. She was 18 at the time and just over five feet tall. Further, the article says, their success was immense. The duo amassed a fortune worth several billions in today's dollars and retired as two of the nation's wealthiest men, according to Joshua Rothman, a professor of history at the University of Alabama who was writing a book on Franklin and Armfield. 
Their location was also prime, perched so that they could collect enslaved people from plantations across Virginia and Maryland and sending them on forced marches in groups of several hundred known as coffles or on tightly packed ships along the Atlantic coast to the deep south. While their business strategy was not especially innovative, it was conducted on a scale bigger and better than anyone else, Rothman said. Franklin and Armfield transported an estimated 10,000 enslaved people over the course of their careers, according to Rothman. So I thought that it was really important to point this out. You know, one of the things that the article doesn't mention is the fact that it talked about these two men gathering enslaved people from the surrounding plantations. But really what they were doing was taking advantage of what was known as kind of like a breeding colony. You know, after slaves could not be imported into the country anymore, Maryland and Virginia were known as breeding states. And so basically these two men were collecting, I guess, enslaved people from this particular area. And then, as the article mentioned, selling them down south and in particular focusing on the enslavement and trading of young women. And one thing it doesn't say that I think is important is it it makes a point to say that there was no financial reward or incentive for these men to be basically, you know, rapists and predators as part of their work. But that's not true because basically, you know, if you could impregnate an enslaved woman, you know, she was very valuable in terms of being sold because she was basically, you were getting two slaves for one. So that's something that I thought that the article failed to say. And I just think that as socialists, it's important for us to always recall these facts and the material basis for our reality today to stand up against people talking about, you know, critical race theory, against people who want to erase history and don't teach it or relax into these like national myths that sanitize slavery, murder, rape and genocide and who don't want to tell the truth about settler colonialism. and. It makes me think of how even in Israel, another settler colonial state, they want to outlaw talking about the Nakba. They don't want to talk about, you know, the genocide and the killing against Palestinian people. The same thing here with critical race theory. And also, you know, stand up to, you know, these Christian nationalists who have shown us that they will, you know, wrap themselves in the Bible to, you know, talk about what they don't want their children taught. But these are the same people who stood up for the institutions of slavery and genocide and did not want people like the Millers in Virginia to even learn about their history. So important. And, you know, I think when we think about this truth telling and why it's so critically important and why it's a political struggle, bottom line, the people of this country, the majority of people of this country actually want to know this history. They didn't make the decisions not to teach the history. This is the ruling class. This is the racist ruling class that benefited from slavery, benefited from apartheid, benefits from racism, and also uses these right-wing white nationalist political forces who don't represent the majority, but who are very active and get amazing amounts of media time. And then the so-called centrist Democrats or liberal Democratic Party establishment, they're not that liberal, actually, they don't stand up to them. And they keep sacrificing the struggle for freedom and equality or truth-telling to the right wing. And I want to say that as as a segue, really, because right now, the Democratic Party 
in spite of the fact that it has the majority in the Senate, the House and the president at the very moment that the Republicans all across the country are using state legislators to rip voting rights, especially voting rights for the poor, for especially black Americans and Latinos, bring those down. The U.S. Congress and the Democratic Party completely failed and they went out. They didn't come in like a lion, but they certainly went out like a lamb. I mean, they went out with a whimper, hardly anything. And this history, this truth telling, the defense of these basic needs in society, I have to tell you just anecdotally before we go to the issue of of the voting rights and what actually happened, Esther, and I want you to pick it up. I was employed for a little while, for a couple of years in the 1980s by the group of writers and researchers who produced a series called Freedom, a Documentary History of Emancipation. That was volume one. And volume two was the wartime genesis of free labor, the Upper South. This is what we're talking about, Virginia, et cetera. I spent a lot of time in the archives because these researchers were trying to tell the stories of Reconstruction from the vantage point of those who had been enslaved and were now freed. And it was almost... Well, it wasn't impossible, but it was a huge effort to learn anything. That's why I was in the basement of the archives, along with other researchers, going through all of these census records in 1865, 1870, because you couldn't tell who people were. There was almost you know, no lineage for people in terms of record keeping in the census. And in terms of how many people this affected, the county that you're talking about, where this man bought the house is Pennsylvania County in Virginia. At the time of the end of the Civil War, Pennsylvania was half black. And half of the black people in Pennsylvania were all enslaved. And Virginia, the state of Virginia in 1865, was one-third enslaved people. So we're talking about a huge, immense part of humanity in the United States who were enslaved, and thus we don't know their names. We It's hard to find out what happened to them. Their children can't find out what happened. And it was their labor. It was their labor that allowed the U.S. capitalist class to get rich. And that's the thing that the capitalists basically don't want working class people of any race or any nationality to know, which is this system lacked legitimacy since its origin. Esther, let's go back to the issue of voting rights. Again, a real setback. Right. You know, and we discussed last week how the King family was here in D.C. leading a march across the Frederick Douglass Bridge from southeast D.C. and actually held a press conference and everything. And all this kind of like buildup to this vote that was almost a foregone conclusion. Senate leader Chuck Schumer knew that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema the holdout Democratic votes, they still weren't on board to carve out a a piece of this Senate rule, this Jim Crow Senate rule called the filibuster, so that voting rights could be passed. You talked about all the laws being passed around the country by Republicans to suppress the vote. And so federal legislation is really the only thing that could remedy that. And rather than rise to this moment in history, people are talking about our democracy is in peril, you know, such as it is. It's even more in peril, I suppose. Manchin and cinema did not get on board. There were actually very 
profound speeches by Jeff Merkley of Oregon, Cory Booker, Raphael Warnock, actually an argument between Cory Booker and the Republican Black Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina about, you know, who knew more about Jim Crow and how horrible it was for the African-American community here. But even after all that, the filibuster rule in the Senate, which has been used repeatedly throughout history to deny voting rights, labor rights, to deny civil rights. It was used again to prevent a vote on the legislation, especially the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act. So there was no vote. And it's not really clear, you know, what's going to happen now. There was supposedly very quickly a bipartisan effort to pass legislation to address the Electoral College and to have reforms so that some of the debacle that happened in the 2020 election won't happen again, where, you know, a president or an elected official can try to manipulate the electors coming from different states and, you know, try to interfere in that process. So, We just don't know what's going to happen at this point, except for that the Democrats have failed to take this very necessary step for free and fair elections around the country and even for their own survival as a party, because it's their voters that are being targeted. All right, let's turn to another story. I'm looking at Consortium News. People should go to that website if you want to learn more about the case of Julian Assange, the editor-in-chief Joe Loria has done a remarkably great job as a journalist covering Julian, and he's also an advocate for Julian's freedom. Here it is. The High Court in London has allowed Julian Assange leave to appeal its own ruling to the UK Supreme Court. The High Court ruled in December that Assange can be extradited to the US, overturning the district court's decision. And here's what this decision specifically means. The High Court of England and Wales on Monday, in essence, allowed Julian Assange, the imprisoned WikiLeaks publisher, the right to appeal at the UK Supreme Court last month's High Court judgment permitting Assange's extradition to the United States. The High Court technically refused to allow an appeal to the Supreme Court but left it up to that court to determine for itself whether it will grant permission to consider one legal issue. So there's one technical issue with which the high court has given allowance or has agreed can go to the UK Supreme Court for a final determination. We'll keep following that story again. Go to Consortium News to stay up on Julian's case. Again, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks have never produced or published anything that's not true. When they published the true materials, whereby we learned about U.S. war crimes and the U.S. government's surveillance against the people in the United States and the people of the world, the New York Times published those documents. So did the Washington Post. So did the Guardian newspaper. They won awards for publishing those reports. They were very proud of those reports. Now we have it that Julian Assange, who published what they published, is sitting in prison for the third year in the UK after having been held for seven years in the Ecuadorian embassy, what the UN called arbitrary detention. So it's been 10 years of confinement. And again, it's not only a chilling message to investigative journalism 
that this foreigner, that this Australian who published materials outside the United States could be brought to the United States and to face espionage charges in the United States against the U.S. government here and possibly spend the rest of his life in prison. It's not only chilling, but one must ask, why is it that the New York Times and the Washington Post, for instance, that were glad to publish Julian's materials or the WikiLeaks reports, why are they not in prison themselves? What did he do that they didn't do? And the follow-up question to that is if they're not in prison for doing the same thing that Julian Assange did, why are they not demanding that Julian Assange be free as they are free? And it really shows the cowardice of U.S. media, the corporate-owned media, and the reporters who work for the media, that there's no strong advocacy right now to free Julian Assange. Anyway, we will continue on this program, on the socialist program, to carry out advocacy for Julian. Again, we urge our listeners, go to Consortium News, follow Joe Loria on Twitter or social media to stay up with the latest. Esther, we're running out of time real quick. Let's give another update about what's happening with the Israeli government funded and financed by the United States to the tune of $5 billion a year, the biggest recipient of U.S. foreign aid over any other country in the world, continuing to carry out crimes against humanity and war crimes against the indigenous Palestinian inhabitants. Yeah, well, it's good that you just mentioned the cowardice of the media and and really, you have to include the State Department officials. You know, we have a Palestinian-American man, 78-year-old Omar Assad, who was dragged from his car, blindfolded and handcuffed by these Israeli troops earlier this month. Then he was taken to a construction site where he died, and they left his body there. Other people who were being detained by these troops said that the man was left on the ground. No one attempted to give him any kind of medical assistance. He had a heart condition. And the account of other people detained by these troops is very different from the one given by Israel. It's caused a, a huge outcry, of course, in the Palestinian community, among human rights activists. Even the Israeli human rights activists, B'Tselem, tweeted, maybe this time when it comes to its citizen, the United States for a change will do something in response to the crimes committed by its good friend, meaning Israel heavily funded, as you mentioned. Palestinian-American writer and activist Susan Abuhawa said Sunday that Omar Assad was an American citizen. We need the Department of Justice to convene a grand jury to indict and extradite his killers because no non-Jew can get justice in Israel. And as a matter of fact, a leaked report from Sunday said that no soldiers were likely to be prosecuted, despite investigators confirming that the man was so poorly treated and then just left to die. So this is happening at the same time that families in Sheikh Jarrah, I think you remember the, the uprising last year because Palestinian families were being removed from their homes, the neighborhood was being ethnically cleansed. Well, that same thing is happening now, too. So the death of Omar Assad is happening at the same time that this ethnic cleansing is ongoing and 
families are being removed from their homes, their homes are being bulldozed. And this is the same type of activity that spurred last year's massive global uprising in support of the Palestinian people. So he's 80 years old. He's visiting his family in Palestine. He stopped at a checkpoint. He's dragged out of the car. He's 80 years old, dragged out of the car, gagged and handcuffed, and then left to die in a construction site. Can you imagine if this was a white man who was visiting his relatives in Russia and the Russian police stopped him at a checkpoint, dragged him to a construction site, gagged him, handcuffed him? I mean, and then he died. Can you imagine? But again, it doesn't matter, everyone, because he's Palestinian. And the American policy of extreme racism towards the Palestinian and Arab people goes on. And this is considered not that big of a deal. Of course, alternative media is reporting on it here in the United States. But where is it on NBC, CBS, MSNBC? Again, this kind of hypocrisy says so much about how the U.S., false pretense as an advocate and defender of human rights is nothing but a shield for actual U.S. foreign policy goals. The U.S. wants Israel there as a partner, as an extension of American power in this resource-rich part of the world. Esther, our final story, the 12th anniversary of the Citizens United ruling. You know, a lot of people who are a bit younger might not know what that ruling was, what its significance was, of course, we feel the repercussions all the time. Absolutely. So this is the 12th anniversary of the Citizens United ruling, which basically allowed corporations to give unlimited funding to political campaigns, to politicians, and really argue that corporations are people, right? So, and that this political giving was speech, And so this has made a profound impact on our elections ever since. And there was a report that came out last week from Americans for Tax Fairness showing that U.S. billionaires dumped a staggering $1.2 billion into the 2020 elections, a 39-fold increase compared to 2010. So this is the kind of increase we're getting. This is the type of impact that we're having. When we see that we cannot mount uh, progressive socialist candidates to compete in what are supposed to be open and fair elections. This is one big reason why, you know, our politics is bought and paid for by the 1%. And this is something that we have to care about as socialists because we are involved and engaged in the political process here. Nicole, we will be back tomorrow with Professor Richard Wolf as we are every Wednesday in our show on the biggest stories in the economy. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the show, we're going to have the Thursday segment, The Real Story, which again is broadcast Wednesday night on Breakthrough News, a deep dive on Ukraine. So for people who need to know or want to know more about what's actually going on in the Ukraine-Russia confrontation, or let's call it the U.S.-NATO-Russia confrontation, we're going to do a deep dive with that. And again, thank you to all of our patrons. We can't do this show without you. If you want to show your support, be a subscriber. Go to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. 
If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 